0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. We're um, still in the book of Mark and uh, chapter 1, and I know that we've kind of been taking it slow here. We're Actually, only on verses 9 through 11 today, but once we get through some of this groundwork, laying kind of the history and the foundation of, uh, of the book, then things will start moving along and we'll, we'll take bigger chunks of the book. But today, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, so if you would, open your Bibles to Mark 1, 9 through 11. And we're going to read there together, and you guys, uh, if you've been around here, you'll you know that we stand to our feet in honor of God's Word when we read God's Word. So Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, this is the Word of God. Now it happened that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning you would open our eyes to the truth of your Word, Lord, that uh, you would give us an understanding today uh, beyond what we have had prior to this morning, that we would learn some things about you, about your sovereign plan, about where you are taking all of us as the body of Christ, Lord, and, and the beauty of prophecy in the coming of your Son and the presentation of the Messiah. It's in your name we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. In comparison to the other gospels, Mark comes right out of the gate, and we find no glimpses of eternity past, no mentions of the pre incarnate Christ as John did, speaking of the word that became flesh in the beginning. There are no wise men. There is no star. There's no evil king out to get uh, Christ. We do not hear one word of Mary or Joseph or angelic proclamations to shepherds. And in all of the Gospels, there's not one mention of a little drummer boy. I just want to point that out. That's all of the Gospels, okay? In fact, in the beginning of Mark's Gospel, it focuses on John the Baptist. The focus isn't even on Jesus. It begins by focusing on John the Baptist. And the Old Testament references are not directly speaking of the Messiah himself, but rather they're pointing to the Messiah's forerunner, this desert prophet that we've talked about in the last several weeks. And Mark's introduction was a statement that this is a new genre of writing, this is a gospel, a new genre all right, the first of the Gospels, and it was the beginning account of the person and work of Jesus, the God-man, God's man, but also the God-man, all right, so important to understand, and then, of course, everything Christ came to do that had been spoken of for thousands of years, and he began with introducing John the Baptist and his significance as the greatest prophet up until then and then he went even further in other passages and we see that John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever be born of a woman which makes him the greatest man. We, we learned that a couple weeks ago and here today in our text we see the beginning of Christ's ministry as the focus shifts from John the Baptist and John the Baptist decreases so that Christ may increase. He begins this section with the words, in those days. And the Bible does this often, and it's basically talking about an undesignated period of time. But you will know that it's this specific designated period of time in history by some of the events that are taking place. So we see this sometimes as we look back into the past. And then we also see it in prophecy, it'll say, in those days. And it'll tell us that when you see these things, you know you're in that day and that hour. Okay? So, um, by all accounts, most believe that John had been doing ministry. John the Baptist had been doing ministry for about six months prior to the time that Jesus came to find him there on the scene and near the Jordan River. Our text also says, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And the first thing that we need to realize is that Jesus initiated this meeting. So, it was him who went to find John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, we know, was his cousin, and we have no indication in Scripture of whether or not they had ever actually met prior to this, this time in the desert. We know that at one point in utero, um, Mary and Elizabeth met, and of course John the Baptist leapt within her womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and leapt within her womb, knowing the child knowing that it was in the presence of, of God. Uh, in Mary's womb. Incredible. And in Luke 3.23, we're told that Jesus was 30 years old at the time, and we can assume that if he went to John, that of course it was the appointed time, that God sent his son at that time to go find his cousin John the Baptist. And now we need to consider the geography, and this is going to be a little different today in that I'm going to point out some Geography there in Israel so that you can see the importance, the significance of it, because it's tied to uh, the Messiah, the Messianic prophecies that had been talked about for many, many years. And we're going to point out a few of those things. And I want you guys to have an understanding of the lay of the land in Israel. It is, it is I mean, just literally history stacked upon history thousands of years just on top of one another and as they dig down the further back they go and they'll get back to the time of christ and then they'll go back to the time of david and then they'll go back to the time of the judges and they'll go and they just keep finding layers and layers of this this history that affirms what the bible tells us that it's absolutely true So, when we consider the geography of the life of Christ, the first place we're going to think of was his birthplace, Bethlehem, right? And if you'll look at this first map, so I'm going to work in tandem with Krista this morning on some of these uh, slides. I don't do slides very often, but when I do, it's because I want you to understand. Um, So, map one is of Bethlehem, and Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, the city of David. This is, of course, David's birthplace, and it was prophesied that this was the city that Christ was to be born. So you see it way down there at the bottom. Of course, up here is north, and you see Bethlehem way down there, and I didn't realize how close Bethlehem was to Jerusalem, but it's just uh, really uh, about a 15-minute drive. Probably wouldn't have taken that long back then. Um, If we look at The book of Micah, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, Micah 5, 2. Here's what it says, this prophecy. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting from the ancient of days. Of course, we know this is talking about Jesus. And you see here, there's a contrast of this everlasting one, this ancient of days, and then this tribe, uh, the tribe of Judah, but yet Bethlehem is too small to be even be counted among. So you see, you kind of get this theme of insignificance that the fact that the the God-man was going to be born in this tiny little insignificant place, and this was prophesied 300 years after King David, so nobody can point to King David and say, It was him because he had already been born. And it was actually prophesied 700 years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. So we know the story. He was born in Bethlehem. Then because of the threat of King Herod, they fled to Egypt until King Herod died. And then uh, the Lord told Joseph to move back to their homeland. And Matthew records this as a fulfillment of prophecy From Hosea 11.1, he says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And so we have, of course, he, he checked that mark. He was born in Bethlehem. He went to Egypt. He was called out of Egypt back to his homeland. And that checks the prophetic mark number two about his birth and childhood. And when they returned to Israel, Joseph and Mary settled down in the town of Nazareth in the Galilee. And we have prophecy regarding this as well. So I want you to pay attention to the names of the tribes of Israel. It's going it's to speak of these tribes by name and the areas of land in which these tribes settled when they were first in Israel. So in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2, it says... But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in the shadow of death, the light will shine Upon them. So we have here in this next map, you see Z- uh, Nazareth, and of course, that's in the land of Zebulun, mentioned in this prophecy by name. That was his boyhood home. And then you see Capernaum which is in the area of Naphtali, and this was his adult home. So you see there the yellow star is where he grew up as a boy, and the red star there at the north of the Sea of Galilee, that's where Christ grew. uh, I'm sorry, that's where Christ moved to as an adult, and that's where most of his ministry was centralized in that area. And then, of course, map 3, you see here it mentions both in this prophecy the River Jordan, and it also mentions the Galilee, this land of Galilee, and that's that that bean-shaped area there, and that's both of those tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, and, and that's the area of Galilee. 95% of all of Christ's ministry took place right in that general area and around the Sea of Galilee or on the Sea of Galilee, so it kind of gives you a picture, and and just to tell you from from where Capernaum is at the top up there if you were to get in a car and drive south all the way down to jerusalem it would be about the same distance as driving from here to oklahoma city so it's not far at all and and it kind of gives you a sense of the size of this area and so literally all of this history biblical history is just on top of one another in this small little area um but you have to notice how specific these prophecies have been about where the ministry of Jesus would be located. And if you look again at Mark's statement in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, Mark chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Now it happened in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So it connects that reality of Christ's ministry with those prophecies that we just read. Okay? Um, Mark specifically, again, connects all of that together with those geographical locations, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the uh, mathematical probability of that toward the end of the message, but it's pretty incredible. It was obviously, as you look at this stuff, it was God's plan all along for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, for him to grow up in the area of Nazareth, and to minister in the area of the Galilee. And the very fact that the long-awaited Messiah was born in the middle of nowhere, on the outskirts of Jewish society, far from the hub, the central like church or religious hub was Jerusalem. And the fact that the Lord had preordained Christ to be born in that area, that, that Arab area where there were fewer Jewish folks, that was a rebuke against that central hub there in Jerusalem. God was rebuking their man-made religious system, and and that's where all of those folks, those educated scribes and Pharisees, surely they believed Christ the Messiah would be born in Jerusalem, in the hot spot of all religious activity. But no, God had other plans, and not only was he born in Jerusalem, Bethlehem, that tiny little insignificant town, but he fled to Egypt. He was called back out of Egypt into uh, the land of Galilee right there in Nazareth. Amazing. So even in this, God was was showing, pointing to who Christ really was. Jesus had grown up in obscurity, a construction worker's son in Nazareth, and now it was his time to make his journey To the jordan and find his cousin john the baptist this next photo was taken while standing on the mount of precipice um, what's called the mount of precipice in nazareth okay in this boyhood home of jesus and you will recognize this when i tell you the story and what took place here this is where the townspeople tried to kill jesus by throwing him off this very cliff and it says he walked in the midst of them. Of course, they couldn't do it. It wasn't his time to die. But that account is found in Luke four. If you want to read that later, you can. You can see the photo where you're looking over the Jezreel Valley. There, just a beautiful, rich in in agriculture, and they grow everything there. And you're looking off toward the mountains, and you see this mountain over here to the left. That's where. The story of Gideon took place where the giant loaf of bread rolled down the mountain and went into the Midianite camp, and, and all of that stuff took place. That's that mountain right there. You're looking right at it where it took place. And so all this stuff took place in that whole area. And um, the, the next slide shows the path that Jesus took to seek out John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan River. So you look here. So if you're standing on that mountain, what you just saw and you're looking that direction. That's the path that you would take going south down along the Jordan River and then finding John the Baptist down there just to the north of the Dead Sea, just to the south and east of the city of Jericho. And in John 128, it says, These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, and that's where John was baptizing. In addition, this baptism site is also believed to be the place where the Israelites crossed the Jordan in Joshua 3 same place. So again, it's like God is pointing over and over to these these geographical sites and and he's he's affirming even in these places that this is his son. This is my man. This is the one who was being prophesied about. So again, this is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan. You've all read that story in Joshua 3. It's also associated with the site that Elijah was taken up in the chariot of fire in 2 Kings 2. And in 2 Kings 5, it's also believed to be where the captain of uh, Syrian the Syrian king's army, he dipped 7 times in the Jordan so that he could be healed of leprosy, okay? Now the next slide, the Jordan River, it's the primary river in Israel and and I mean, look, this is this is what it looks like. Now, there's an area further north that they've got all these stone pathways and bathrooms and people come and they get baptized in the Jordan River and it's much uh, prettier and pristine and the water is cleaner there. Down here, right across the river, there's a monastery and a lot of times the, the Arabs and the folks over there will actually like to dishonor the, the place where they believe Christ was baptized. They'll actually... Uh, urinate in the river there while people were there being baptized, and so it's just that kind of attitude that you're dealing with, but this is basically that area and what the terrain looks like around there. Now, when the Israelites crossed, the river was much, much wider than that, so uh, we know that the the waters had to be parted for them to walk across at that time. Um, So, Uh, The Jordan River, as I was saying, is the primary river in Israel. Its headwaters begin north uh, near Mount Hermon. You can go to the next map there. Um, And this is believed to be way up top there, is believed to be, okay, go one more, I think. There we go. I believe that's it. Way up top there is Mount Hermon, and, uh, and you see I've highlighted the river there. But that is the headwaters up there, and Mount Hermon is what they believe to be one of the sites of the Mount of Transfiguration, which I believe to be the case because it's near Caesarea Philippi, which is where Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter confessed, thou art the Christ. And then just right after that, they they went up a few days later, they hiked up that mountain, and that's where Christ was transfigured before uh, a few of his disciples there. Uh, It flows onward south all the way down from uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is 680 feet below sea level, okay? And then it keeps flowing further down all the way down to the Dead Sea, which just happens to be the lowest place on the earth. It is actually 1,300 feet below sea level there at the Dead Sea. And uh, so Jesus, at this appointed time, he left Nazareth and he sought out his cousin, John the Baptist, in this general location of the Jordan River. And it was likely a warm summer day. Most believe it was around the year A.D. 26. There were likely crowds of people just kind of all along the the banks of the river. They had been out there to hear this desert prophet. Remember, you recall that Mark says all of Jerusalem and the region of Judea came out to be baptized by him. And so we know that that doesn't mean every single soul, but Mark was saying it this way to say, look, it seemed like everybody and their goldfish came down to see John the Baptist, you know, preaching in, and baptizing in the Jordan. And, um, but we know clearly not every person. But that just goes to show you how popular um, John the Baptist was and what a big deal that this was, that there's this guy out in the desert proclaiming that he's the forerunner and that the Messiah is soon to come. And that's why so many people travel to see him. And there were murmurs in the crowd, likely rumors about something that John had said, as I mentioned, that John said that one is coming after me whose sandals I am not even worthy to stoop down and unlatch. I'm lower than the lowliest of the slaves. I'm not even worthy to to lean down and unlatch his sandals. And of course, showing his great humility and though he was a holy man, having lived consecrated to the Lord, you know, he knew his place. He knew that he was just the forerunner and that his job was to point to Christ. And a holy man lived a life consecrated to the Lord, and yet that's his attitude. And quite honestly, I think all of us need to understand that, that Jesus is not our homeboy, You know, he's not our buddy. He is our sovereign God in the flesh who came and paid a price for each and every one of us. And we need to keep that in mind in our worship and how we address him. Of course, he is an intimate Savior and a loving Lord, but he is also an infinite God. And we always need to keep that in mind and stand in awe. But as this crowd pushed in to see John baptizing and speaking, so many of them taking part in the ceremonial cleansing for the repentance of sin, John's attention turns to one man standing in the midst of this mass of people. And in John 1 29, we read of this account in more detail. He points to Jesus the Messiah and he yells, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, he's pointing Jesus out to be the Passover lamb. And they were all uh, familiar with the Passover lamb. And so Jesus comes forward through the crowd and he has a request that was probably quite shocking to John. and probably to many in the crowd as well, he asks John to baptize him, but there's a problem with this just in the general thinking of those around and especially with John, um, he protests, he pushes back. you know and in Matthew 3:14 we see, Further details, if you want to write down Matthew 3 14, John says, You are coming to me to be baptized. It is I who needs to be baptized by you. Remember, it was John who had already been saying that the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Spirit. So he was protesting. No, Lord, this can't be. You I can't baptize you. You're here to baptize me. You see? The one who comes after me will baptize in the Spirit. Jesus was to come and bring this superior form of baptism, a real baptism that actually transforms the heart and, and and takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh like this was supposed to be the baptism of the Spirit. And so John was rightly confused there for a moment. He was asking John to baptize him with this inferior ceremonial cleansing. And the most confusing part for John was that John had been telling people that this baptism was a baptism for the uh, forgiveness of sins. So you see the problem there in John's mind, that repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And he was hesitant, and he was likely confused. And the text indicates that he was hindering Jesus, perhaps even arguing with Jesus uh, at this time. And remember how John the Baptist acted toward the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you, if you write down Matthew 3, 7 and 8, you can turn over there. Matthew 3, 7 and 8. He saw the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he saw their fake holiness and he called them out. He knew they were disingenuous. He knew they weren't truly holy and John the Baptist called them out. He held nothing back. He called them a brood of vipers and he asked them, who warned you to flee The wrath to come. They were self-righteous, they were hypocrites, they were prideful, they were duplicitous, they were self-seeking, and their faith was in their genealogy, the fact that they were children of Abraham, and their faith was in their own righteousness, the standard of righteousness. Everybody look at me, look how holy I am. And John the Baptist, of course, saw right through all of that, and he called them out, and he, and he, held a mirror up to them. We know Jesus did the same thing when he was around, calling them whitewashed tombs, okay? He saw right through their facade, and he pointed it out to everyone. And this day, the man in front of John the Baptist was none of those things. He was the God-man, as genuine and perfect as could be. This Jesus of Nazareth, he was sinless, perfect. This long-awaited Messianic king who would save everyone. And today, today he is here, standing right in front of John the Baptist, asking John to baptize him. No, Jesus, this cannot be. Surely, surely you've got this wrong. It is I who should be baptized by you. And of course, as I said, John was right in his reluctance based upon his knowledge that he was working from. But there was something else much bigger going on here as this was playing out. Something much bigger in the grand scheme of things that John, in his temporal perspective, even as great as he was, he just did not understand. So all he knew to do was to push back. In Matthew 3.15, we again get to see this conversation in a little more detail. Matthew 3.15, but Jesus answered and said to him, permit it at this time. John, permit it at this time. I understand that you're confused, but just let me do what I need to do. And Jesus was basically saying, I know this is something that doesn't make sense to you. I know that you don't understand. And Jesus didn't have, probably didn't have the time or the patience to stand there and give John the Baptist a theology lesson and and explained to him, okay, now look, here's the overarching theme of God's design in, in human history, John. And you know, he just said, Permit it at this time. Okay? Jesus didn't rebuke John for doing something wrong, so he wasn't in the wrong. He just recognized that John was being humble and he was being reverent to, to him as as the Christ. But Jesus said to his cousin, stop hindering me, John. Permit it at this time. There's something bigger going on here. Continuing what he said in Matthew three fifteen, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John permitted him. So both Jesus and John knew there was no issue with Jesus himself. There was no sin involved at all here. Jesus was, of course, sinless. He was spotless. He was righteous and perfect in every way. But Jesus said he must fulfill all righteousness and asked for John to circumvent his appropriate protest and permit this at this time. But what did Jesus uh, mean by fulfill all righteousness? What's going on here? Well, ultimately, he was saying God has a much bigger plan then John could understand in that moment and so Jesus simply asked John to yield to God's plan. Might I just say that's the way we ought to live as well. We should live our lives uh, and yield to God's plan. Not my will, but thy will be done, Lord. Uh, even in the times that we don't understand what's going on around us in the most difficult of circumstances, we yield to God's plan. We trust and obey because we know he is faithful. So what was God's plan? Well, all prophecy pointed to the Messiah being the spotless lamb, a sacrifice, and even more importantly, a substitution. We're talking about penal substitution. Yes, his death on the cross. But there was this substitutionary sacrifice. We learned from Paul later on that because of Adam's sin, all died. And then in the last Adam, in his finished work, all will live again. And it was not just Christ's death that offers salvation. It was his perfect life that he lived as well, a sinless life. And though Jesus did not need to be baptized, because he's acting as a substitute on behalf of those he came to seek and save, he was baptized for their sake to fulfill all righteousness, to live a perfect life, to be perfectly obedient. So think of it this way. If all Jesus had to do was die... He could have just stepped out of heaven, taken on the form of a man like the angel of Lord as he did in the Old Testament, and he could have offered himself as God to be crucified. But it, it wasn't that simple. We know that not, it's not only Christ's death that offers the fullness of salvation, but as I said, equally his sinless life. He had to live a sinless life because you and I, we can't live a sinless life. It's impossible. We needed him to live a sinless life for us. Okay? So while Jesus personally, as I said, he was perfect in every way, he had to fulfill righteousness, and he did so on our behalf. Ours is ceremonial, but Christ's was obedience. His was necessary. His sinless life, and yes, his baptism was for all of us to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus left no stone unturned for us. He left no box unchecked For you and I, he dotted every I and crossed every T. That's what Jesus did in every single one of these situations. His perfect work on our behalf was absolute, it was comprehensive, and it was complete. He lived an exemplary, perfect life as our substitute. And he went on to die the death that we deserve. Of course, the second half of that is taking on the wrath of the Father that you and I absolutely deserved that he took that upon himself as our substitute and in his baptism Jesus identified listen this is this is interesting Jesus in his baptism identified with sinners he he went down in that water he was buried in the likeness of death identifying with what you and I deserve and he was looking ahead to the cross in doing so we look behind us to the cross, and we're raised up, and we identify with Christ because we're raised to new life in Christ Jesus. Amazing. Wonderful. This was the one-two punch that defeated the fleshly nature of mankind. That's why we can live victorious over sin. It crushed the head of the devil. That's why the devil has no power over us. And it put death in the grave. One day, death will be no more. So while it was appropriate for John the Baptist to protest... Based on his limited knowledge, Jesus said, John, don't hinder me. Permit this at this time. Because from Christ's eternal perspective, it had to be done to fulfill all righteousness. So in perfect submission to his Father, the Son of God went down into the water, and John, fulfilling the purpose of his consecrated life, he baptized Jesus in the waters of the Jordan. So you have the fulfillment here of two Uh, men and their ministry. Okay, now let's look at verse 10. Verse 10. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So this is a Trinitarian moment, a moment unlike any other that we see in scripture. And while we have this desert prophet doing his best as the forerunner, as popular as he was, as great as he was getting the word out about this coming Messiah, um, you know, we have here God himself in this moment, the triune God affirming who Christ was. So John did a great job But in this moment, you have God himself affirming who Jesus Christ was and what he came to do, his life and his ministry. The Father sent Jesus into the world and now into the water. And the Word who was made flesh, the Son of Man, obeyed, and he went down into the water and he was baptized. And the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, representing in the Old Testament these kings who were anointed with oil, they, you, you remember some of the stories of the pouring the oil on the king's head and it running down his head and getting in his beard? This is the picture. He had descended upon Jesus like a dove, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, uh, basically affirming the Holy Spirit, affirming that this was to Christ, the anointed one, the king who was to come, anointing him for his purpose and his ministry, and then God the Father spoke in verse 11, a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And you know, God never said this about any other prophet in the Old Testament. The closest we could get is 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 saying that David was a man after God's own heart, but, but God never said in him I am well pleased to anybody but Jesus, and that's because Jesus was the only man who could please the Father, who could actually, has, has lived a sinless life and and uh, lived according to the standard of God's holiness. And, and uh, one of the things I wanted to point out to you, because it's, it's fairly uh, soon upcoming in all of our lives, and just like we saw the marriage of, you know, like uh, the prince in over there across the pond... On Saturday, May uh, 6th of this year, just under a month from now, King Charles is going to be coronated. He's going to be officially coronated as the king. And in this ceremony, he's going to make vows with the Bible there. Um, with his hand on the Bible, you'll see various forms of symbolism with swords and, and you know, all of the different uh, various religious practices that are kind of intertwined with this coronation with him as king. You'll no doubt see King Charles announced as a representative of God because that's what they do. He will be anointed and affirmed, and it'll be a really, really big deal in the media probably throughout that entire week and on social media. All eyes will likely be turned toward that event because something like this happens so rarely. This coronation will set him apart. The nation itself will affirm him and present him before the people as their new king, officially. And this event we're reading about here in Mark, as I said, is a Trinitarian coronation, a divine coronation. God the Father is setting Christ apart, the Holy Spirit anointing and affirming him, and this act sets him forth and presents him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What an incredible moment to witness. From here... Jesus is led into the wilderness, of course, and we're going to talk about that more next week. He was led out to be tempted, and then he will soon thereafter begin his ministry, and we'll start seeing that unfold as Mark unfolds it quickly and to the point. And uh, in this time of the unfolding of his ministry, we see that Christ fulfilled so many prophecies, and in this, in his book *Science Speaks*, a man by the name of Peter Stoner applies uh, the modern science of probability, and he uses just eight prophecies, eight prophecies regarding Christ. He says the chance that any mo- man might have fulfilling all eight prophecies is one in ten to the seventeenth power. Now, if you're like me, and math is uh like anathema to you um that may not mean much but i'm going to try to simplify it so you can understand that would be one in 100 quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion and famously you've probably heard it said that if they if you were to mark a silver dollar and you fill the state of texas up four feet deep with silver dollars and you were to throw that silver dollar into, into the state of Texas and stir it all up, and you send one man into the state of Texas, the chance he would have of finding that one silver dollar in all of the state of Texas are, is the same odds as this right here. There are 1,000 million in 1 billion. There are 1,000 billion in 1 trillion. There are 1,000 trillion in a quadrillion And the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies is 1,000 trillion to one. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And today, we've just covered five very specific prophecies in relation to just geography, just Christ being born in this area of Israel and those locations relating to Christ's life and ministry. We have Bethlehem, Egypt, Nazareth, Galilee, and the Jordan River, which would make the mathematical probabilities of fulfilling the prophecies essentially impossible, just mathematically impossible. And just these today I have written down here would, would exceed, just the ones we've covered in the sermon today would exceed 1 in 50 quadrillion, the chances I don't like those odds. Do you? (laughs) So it's amazing that just math itself proves that Jesus was who he said he is. He did what he said he would do, and he will do what he said he will do. And we sang about it earlier. Great is thy faithfulness. The power of prophecy in Scripture is the only thing that sets us apart, really, from other ancient books of other religions that would say, you know, this is what we believe and why we believe it. But you know Christianity is the only religion that has prophecy the way we have prophecy, and we can actually point to prophecy and see that Christ fulfilled these things, not just Christ, but all throughout Scripture— that these prophecies were fulfilled over and over and over again, not just quasi-fulfilled, but they were fulfilled to a T, specifically fulfilled by Jesus, and just considering eight of them, and uh, those are the odds. Eight, but yet there are supposedly over 300 various prophecies that were fulfilled in his first coming, and there are yet many to be fulfilled in his second coming, and I look forward to that day. Amen? Great is his faithfulness. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And folks, let me tell you something. If you will just submit to him, if you will repent and believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will put your faith in him and all he came to do, he will transform your life. He will make you a new person and he will give you peace, love, and joy like you could not ever imagine in this life, knowing that your eternal promise All of the eternal promises are yet to come. There's nothing in this world that can hurt you or take you off track if you are held in the Father's hand. Amen? This is the God we serve, and this is the Christ we worship. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.